Uh, Lord, I thank you so much for our brother Jacob. Lord, thank you that you uh, saved him. Thank you, Lord, that you have brought him into your church. We thank you that you've brought him to a redeemer, Lord. We thank you for what you're doing in his life. Pray, Lord, that you would use him and speak through him to our hearts. We love you. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I, I think I know everybody here, uh, but for those who are watching live stream, uh, my name is Jacob Candler, and I am a member here at Redeemer. Um, I've been privileged with the opportunity uh, to participate in the eldership training program here, um, and part of that is coming up here and preaching a sermon. Um, and so I'd like to give thanks to Matt and Benton and Robert for sharing this pulpit with me. Um, let's pray. Lord, like the father of the prodigal son, you joyfully welcome all who turn to you from their sins. Um, we pray, Lord, that through today's reading and teaching that you would create in us a clean conscience and an obedient heart based on the blood of Jesus Christ that was shed for us. I pray, Lord, that the spirit who inspired scripture would illuminate our minds and help us to set our hope fully on the grace that will be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ so that we would gradually yet imperfectly resemble him in the days to come. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. For those who don't know, uh, the Mega Millions jackpot on Friday was the third largest in lottery history. It was $1 billion. If you spent $1 million a year, that would last you for 1,000 years. If you spent $500,000 a year, that would last you for 2,000 years. And if you spent $100,000 a year, that would last you for 10,000 years. That is an enormous amount of money. Peter, addressed to persecuted Christians living in five regions of Asia Minor, we find an exhortation purposed with encouraging believers to emulate the suffering Christ in their time of distress. What's more, Peter writes to remind them that they have obtained an imperishable inheritance, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for them. For those who don't know, that imperishable inheritance is salvation through Jesus Christ. Over the past couple of evening services, we've studied the text given to us thus far in the book of 1 Peter, namely chapter 1, verses 1 through 12. And before we dive into the text for today's sermon, I'd like to give a short summary of what has been studied thus far. Peter says, in essence, that we are born again. We are a new creation born to a living hope. Our hope is in the God who rose from the dead. God, who is perfect, created everything, the heavens and the earth, to be perfect with him and perfect relationship to him. But man, the pinnacle of his perfect and good creation, chose to rebel, to sin, the wages of which, Scripture tells us, is death. On our behalf, the only begotten Son of God, Jesus Christ, took our place on a cross and died for us. He rose again on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and he will come again to judge the living and the dead. God's word says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So for those who have not done that yet, be saved today. Believe that Jesus alone can save you from your sins and follow him. Be born again to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, more valuable than anything in this world. Our sermon this evening title is titled, uh, Everyone to Whom Much Was Given of Him, Much Will Be Required. And our text this evening is a continuation in our study of the first letter of Peter. Um, so I ask that you would all join me in turning to this evening's reading, which comes from 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 to 21. Peter says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action 
and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Therefore, perhaps the most important word in today's passage is the first word of it. In this transition word, therefore, we see what separates biblical Christianity from false religion. We see the salvation equation, as it were. In our study of 1 Peter thus far, Peter's talked much about what God has done for us. And in today's passage, Peter discusses what we ought to do in response. God has done this in Christ, therefore you are to do this in response. This order is important, and I think that so many in the modern church do not understand this order. I mean, what separates Christianity from any other religion on earth is that we are not a religion of performance. We are a religion of grace. It's so easy to forget this order. I do it every day. And that's why it's important to remind ourselves and those around us of the gospel. As we will see, we are called to holiness, to obedience, but it is not to earn God's favor. Those who are in Christ already have God's favor. Not of ourselves, but of the work of Christ on the cross at Calvary. First Peter talks much about our status as exiles in a fallen world, and perhaps nothing separates us from this performance-driven world more than our belief that performance gets you absolutely nothing in the way of salvation. However, God expects those whom he has saved to walk differently than those around them. He expects a great response to the great gift that has been given through Jesus Christ. The first way to respond to this salvation, which Peter lays out, is found in verse 13. Preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded. One of the commands that Jesus gives is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your mind and with all your or with all your soul and then with all your mind. Uh, Lifeway Research put out a study that found that only 11 percent of Christians have read the entirety of their Bible, and only 9 percent have read it all more than once. The rise of smartphones, social media, and the immediacy of news and entertainment has dumbed the attention span of the average person to a mere couple of minutes, often seconds. Um, I'm often met with astoundedness when I tell people that I read a book or more a week. The Spirit, through Peter here, says to prepare our minds for action, for a battle, as it were. And so we must put in the spiritual sweat needed to set our hope fully on the grace that will be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I spent last summer in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, with my parents. Um, and there we went to the beach pretty often. Um, I remember I would walk out toward the ocean from where our chairs were and do my best to swim out in a straight line. Um, once I got out so far, I would turn and look back and try to find my chair. Um, and so 
the waves of the ocean would gradually move me to the left or to the right, often without my knowing. So it is with the Christian life. If we do not prepare our minds for action and set our hope fully on Christ, though we think we pursue him, we will drift. That is the power of the culture in which we find ourselves to be exiles. So how then do I prepare my mind for action? What is the battle plan here? Prayer, listening to worship music, keeping Christ at the center of your conversation, not failing to meet with believers. And I think Spurgeon hits it home when he says that we are to live in the scriptures. In it we find the counsel of God, for it is the very word of God. Next, Peter says to be sober-minded. The term sober-minded means literally to be free from intoxicating influences. When we talk about our good neighbor Jimmy not being drunk with alcohol or high on drugs, we say that he is sober, that his mind is not under the control of a dangerous outside force. And yet in the Christian life, being sober is not limited to drugs or alcohol. It is to be free from sinful influence as well. A sober-minded individual is calm under pressure, self-controlled in all areas, free from the influence of lust, anger, greed, and pride. Over the course of our eldership training um, here at Redeemer, we've referenced 1 Timothy and Titus in order to find the biblical qualifications of an elder. One of those, in fact, is to be sober-minded. And yet Peter here says this in a general sense, so as to apply to all Christians. To finish with verse 13, uh, Peter again says to set our hope fully on the grace that will be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We are to hope fully in that. There is no divided, or there's no room, rather, for divided hope in the grace of God. You cannot have hope in his grace and in power, in his grace and in status, in his grace and in money, in his grace and in social justice, in his grace and in Donald Trump or Joe Biden. It's simply not possible. Peter says that we are to set our hope fully on his grace and in his grace alone. And I would say that this hope in a future grace is also a contributing factor to what will distinguish us as exiles in this world. When others despair, we hope. When others stockpile, we give. And when others grow in sinfulness, we grow in holiness. The next thing Peter says to do, or rather what not to do, is found in verse 14. He says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. God desires and demands our obedience. As obedient children, we do not conform to the passions of our former ignorance. I like how the NIV puts it. It says, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. The only other time that we see do not be conformed is in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, where Paul says, do not be conformed to this world. And here, Peter says, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. The two are linked. I think it's important to look again to the command given by Jesus to love God with our minds. Not only our minds, but he also says our hearts. I want you to turn with me to James chapter 4, verse 1. James chapter 4, verse 1. And it James asks, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? Your passions. 
Not only are we to give lordship of our minds over to Christ, but we are to give lordship of our hearts also. For it is the passions of the heart that brings about our actions. Eve sinned as a result of the passion or the desire to become like God. Adultery happens as a result of a sinful desire or a sinful passion of lust. Pride comes from a desire or a passion to put someone else down or to lift ourselves up. We must not conform to these passions of our former ignorance. The next thing we must do is pursue holiness. Peter says in verse 15, But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. Here he quotes Leviticus. Is anybody doing a year-long Bible read-through? Yeah. Well, I know most of you are probably going to get to Leviticus soon, um, which is the, the graveyard of most Bible read-throughs. So, uh, but, I mean, keep reading. It's still God's Word, and in that it's still profitable for teaching. Um, but again, he says, You shall be holy, for I am holy. God is holy. Habakkuk says that he can't even look at sin. The fact that you and I are even breathing right now is an act of mercy from a holy God. Well, what does it mean that God is holy? To say that God is holy is to say that He is perfect. He is unlike any other. He has absolutely no sin. At the same time, we know that it's impossible for us humans to be without sin. So how can we, sinners, possibly be holy like a sinless God? To be holy, when literally translated, is to be set apart. When God told Israel to be holy in Leviticus, he was telling them that they were to be distinct from others of this world. Israel was God's chosen people, and as such, they were given standards that God wanted them to live by, so that the world would know that they belonged to him. So Peter, when writing to believers here, is not saying that God expects you to be perfect as God is perfect but he does expect you to be different from the rest of the world's inhabitants. The separation, this being set apart, is only brought about through regeneration, and it's by believing in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior that we are set apart. And so we must daily live a life that reflects being set apart, not trying to blend in with the world, but instead living according to God's word as we study the Bible and grow in it. Verse 17, and if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. If we find ourselves saying he's a good and forgiving father so I can do whatever I want, then we are in danger. Our father who art in heaven is also our judge. This must be carefully understood. God, whom we call on as father, has proven his love for us. He is a good father. Through him we are saved. We are secure. But God, like any good father, does not noddingly approve at every choice that we make. He is holy and he is just. And so he judges our actions with absolute fairness and complete understanding of our hearts. And so this judgment does not determine the location of our eternal dwelling. Um, in this letter and in the rest of Scripture, it's made pretty clear that the decision dealing with our eternal dwelling, has already been made. It, it's final. God grants his believing children eternal life on behalf of the work of Christ. However, 
God does pay attention to whether his believing children are distinguishable or set apart from the rest of the world, all for his purposes, or whether we conform to the passions of our former ignorance. We are not to be in utter terror of God and his wrath or eternal damnation if we do have faith in him, but we are to have a reverence for God, which is an awareness that the God of the universe watches and expects those that are born again to make choices that bring him glory. And so thus far we've seen the gospel in verses 1 through 12, our response in verses 13 through 17, and now Peter again presents the gospel in verses 18 through 21. Verse 18, he says, Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Why should you pursue holiness? Because you were ransomed with the precious blood of the atonement lamb. The ways inherited from our forefathers were futile. Ladies and gentlemen, to have your life centered upon anything but Jesus Christ is to have a life that is empty. It is futile. And it is Christ alone who gives life. It is Christ alone who gives purpose. It is Christ alone who gives peace. And it is Christ alone who grants access to the Father. To devote yourself to anything else is a worthless pursuit. Our world esteems such things as silver or gold, but Peter rightly says here that they are perishable. So put your hope in the God who is imperishable. Put your hope in the God who created the silver and the gold. We are ransomed with the precious blood of Christ, and that is why we ought to pursue holiness. Finally, verse 20. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Not only did God foreknow his elect before he laid the foundations of the world, but he also foreknew the means by which he would save them. He had it all planned. God had everything under control, he has everything under control, and he will have everything under control. Before there was a let there be light, there was a there they crucified him. And so, Peter writes to a suffering church, empathizing with the sorrows of a life of exile in a broken world. He does so to remind us of the gift given to us through Christ, and to remind us also that though life is hard, God has a plan. And until that plan comes to fruition, we are to walk in holiness, to persevere in our exile, until we join those who have gone on before to the other side of glory. Though life can be hard, we must set our hopes fully on Christ, And in our time, we will join him in the land where happy praise to the king will ring for eternity. We were not redeemed with perishable things, but with the precious blood of Christ. I mean, what a motivation for obedience. Through Christ, we are freed from the oppression and the slavery that comes from sin. Before we close, um, I'd like to leave you with this. Um, for those who don't know me well, I like movies a lot. And my favorite movie series is the famed Boxing Saga the Rocky series. In the first movie of this series, Rocky fights a dude named Spider Rico. And so Spider Rico loses to Rocky in a club match after he landed a cheap shot, a headbutt on Rocky. He was disqualified. Decades pass, and in the sixth installment of the saga, titled Rocky Balboa, 
we see an aged Spider Rico who had suffered head trauma because of his boxing career. And he found it difficult to keep a job because of it. In the movie, Rocky offers Spider Rico free food from his restaurant and a job in its kitchen. To show his gratitude to Rocky for the job and the free food, Spider Rico worked harder than anyone else in that restaurant, volunteering to take on additional duties and never ceasing to give thanks to Rocky for the wonderful gift that he had given him. I plead and I pray that considering our salvation, God would help us all to see this great gift, this great liberation, and that he would help us to all walk in obedience so that we might show our gratitude for what has been done for us. Revelation chapter 21, verse 6 says, And he said unto me, It is done. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely. Spider Rico was given a job and free food. Whoever won the jackpot on Friday won a billion dollars. But we have been given a cup of eternal life. Ladies and gentlemen, we have been gifted a relationship with the maker of the heavens and the earth, a relationship that is eternal in its duration. And so I beg you, please do not waste that gift. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, like Spider Rico, I pray that you would give us all a heart of gratitude, um, that we would walk in obedience, knowing that we were ransomed through the blood of Christ. Lord, we are incapable of doing good on our own, but I pray that you would equip us to do good in order to bring you glory. Paul writes to the Ephesians that we are your workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Help us, Lord, to always remember that order. Grace came first, and it demands our response. Our salvation is not our own doing. It is a gift, Lord, that you have given us, and I pray that you would help us to make the most of that precious gift. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.